So the last two weeks, we've looked at the arrest and the trial of Jesus, really focusing on Judas and Peter. Today, we're going to start to zoom into Jesus. Short text. I mean, I looked at this text and thought, I don't know how I'm going to get a sermon out of this thing. Um, But by the end, I, I think there could be two or three. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Starting at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus replied, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby, your text says slapped, hit him, punched him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus said, if I said something wrong, testify to what it it is that I said wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is our text for today. You can be seated. So let's start with this. How how did Jesus get to this place? I mean, who arrested Jesus? Let's just do this by way of review. John 18, verse 3 said, So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they arrested Jesus. So... Judas arrested Jesus. He was one of the co-conspirators. It also talks about a detachment of soldiers, and we've learned what that means. Uh, Detachment in the Greek there is spira, and spira is a technical word, just like in our language we have things like division, battalion, things like that. A spira is a Roman division of 600 soldiers. That'd be more people that are in this room right now coming to arrest Jesus, Romans. In fact, there, there's probably something, too, that I, I, I would like for us to see in, in all of this, because this is all part of the world in which Jesus lives. Uh, I gave you uh, something to put in your Bibles, a map of uh, Jerusalem, uh, what it looked like in the first century, but I know you guys don't have that, so I'll just show it to you on the screen right now. Uh, this is a reconstruction of what Jerusalem would have looked like in, in the time of Jesus, and up there in the red and blue, those circles are Annas' house and Caiaphas' house where the trial takes place and also the upper room where Jesus was with his disciples before all that happened. But the green square is what I want to draw your attention to uh, because it's, there's a building. We're looking north. The big building, the big square is the temple, the whole temple complex, the most beautiful building in the world at this time. Just north of that, if you see that, that is what is called the Antonio Fortress. Herod built that fortress to honor his, one of his best friends, uh, Mark Anthony, as a barracks. Because Rome rules Israel, Jerusalem. It's a police state. And listen to what Josephus, who's an eyewitness uh, to, to first century events, writing in the first century. 
He says, for there always resides in this Antonio Tower a Roman legion with their arms, especially for Jewish feasts, in order to watch the people that they might not there attempt to make any innovations. Kind of an interesting way of putting it, any innovations. Um, Now listen, it is so hard for us as Americans to understand this reality because we are Rome today. No foreign military occupies or polices us. We occupy and police others. This is all part of the world of Jesus. Rome comes to arrest Jesus. But not just Rome, the text says, it's also chief priests, priests, and Pharisees. These are two distinct Jewish parties who don't always like each other. And we've talked about them before. Let me start with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the back to the Bible movement of the first century. They ignite this whole religious movement that gave to the world rabbis with disciples uh, and put synagogues in every village and town, not even just in Judea, but all throughout the Roman world. The Pharisees hate Rome. And you can understand why. They believe they are God's people to be under God's rule, not Rome's rule. But Pharisees are pacifists. It's a conviction they hold to. So they believe that Rome is God's responsibility. It's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be people of the book, learning it, walking it, teaching it, making disciples of it. But think about this. The Pharisees hate Rome not as much as they hate Jesus. And they are willing to lay their pacifism down to kill Jesus. The priests, they too are, their, are, are a distinct group. They're a part of this arrest. In fact, they're the ones who are driving it. They're the ones that are motivating it. So who are the priests? The priests are the elite class of Jew who run the temple. Remember, the temple is the centerpiece of Jewish life and religion. The whole Jewish identity in the first century is rooted in the temple. And because of this, it's the halls of power. It's the Vatican, Washington, D.C., throw a little Wall Street in in there, and you have uh, this world that the priests are in charge of. So if the Pharisees are this organic movement, the priests in the first century are the institutional power, the direct power over the Jewish people. And they're known by their uniform. They walk around in these flowing robes very much like a pope or a cardinal, a senator or a Supreme Court justice would today. And even the archaeology tells us a lot about the priests, the homes that they have uncovered. They lived in these palatial mansions that were adorned with every Roman luxury of that time. Many had a second home, a vacation home in Jericho. Jericho means city of palms. Now remember, you were born into this. You didn't go to school to become a priest. If your lineage lineage uh, was traced back to the tribe of Levi, you were automatically a priest. Remember Moses and Aaron, 
were of the tribe of Levi. God put this charge, this tribe in charge of the tabernacle and then the temple. So think about it. In Jesus' day, this privilege, this status that the priests had was something that a person was born into. Now in the Gospels, the name of this group of people are the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the priests, or the people that run the temple, this elite class of Jew. Now here's something I thought about this week. There is a group of Jews that are not part of this arrest. Does anybody know what group I haven't talked about? Who? Sadducees are the priests. Zealots. Where are the zealots? The zealots have the most passionate hate towards Rome of any Jew during this time. I mean, they, 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 they longed for this Messiah, one like David, who would come and crush Rome. They looked at their biblical story and they saw how their heroes like Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Elijah, all picked up the sword to do the Lord's bidding. In fact, when I studied at Jerusalem University College, we were at this place that the zealots made famous, uh, a place called Masada. And I remember my professor, Dr. Wright, saying that every Jew in the first century had zealotry in their blood, but it was just how far are you going to take this? So a zealot is, is, is a gun-carrying Jew, and, and they're ready to make war against Rome. In fact, at the Last Supper, I don't know if you know this, this is a detail in Luke's gospel, but Jesus asked his disciples, how many knives do we have? That's the equivalent to a nine millimeter. Two of the disciples say, I have one. Even Peter's one of them. He's carrying a nine millimeter. This zealot fervor is what's on full display for Jesus' triumphal entry because the palm branch was the zealot flag and Hoshanah was the zealot battle cry. And remember how Jesus responded to this as he's on that donkey going down that hill hearing all the Hoshanahs and the waving of the palm branches. He begins to weep, cry like a baby because he's like, they just don't get it. He is not that king. That is not his kingdom. So these Jewish parties, the Sadducees, this priestly class, the Pharisees, uh, and the Zealots are, are, are all mentioned frequently in the Gospels, and they form this complicated, complex Jewish world in which Jesus lives. And listen, this is not just Jew against Rome. This turns into Jew against Jew. And you ask, why would a Jew be against a Jew in the first century? Because they had different responses to Rome. The Sadducees, this elite priestly class, they're in bed with Rome. Pharisees hated Rome, but thought it was God's thing to deal with Rome. Zealots hated Rome, wanted to destroy Rome, and even destroy and kill off Jews who are in bed with Rome like tax collectors and priests who are getting rich on Rome. Why does this matter? 
Who comes to arrest Jesus? Well, if Judas is a zealot, you have one zealot. You have Romans. You have Pharisees. And you have priests, Sadducees. They are all part of this plot to destroy Jesus. I think that's a lot to think about. Do you know anyone this hated? By everyone. But look at verses 12 to 14. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. They brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. Okay, so Jesus is first brought to Annas. And here's where you have to ask the basic question. Who is Annas? Well, when Rome took over what they called Palestina, from which we get Palestine. When the Romans took over, they allowed the Jews to practice their religion. Of course, Rome was in full control. Here's where this gets messy. Because Jews at this time think theocratically. Theo is the word for God. Cratic is the word for politic. In other words, the way that they think is there's no separation in their minds between religion and politics, much like the Middle East is today. So for the Jews at this time, their constitution is what? It's the Bible. Their laws are the statutes, the commands of the text, the Ten Commandments, and every every command that, that is there. This goes all the way back to Moses. So then who interprets these laws? Who enacted these laws? Who executed justice? Well, this too goes all the way back to Moses because remember, Moses is the first high priest and early in the game, uh, he couldn't handle all the cases that were put on his lap. So God commanded Moses in Numbers 11, 16, and 17, he said, select 70 elders who would who could help you, Moses, handle the disputes and execute justice. So in essence, these 70 elders, and they traced themselves all the way back to Moses through the whole story, essentially these 70 elders become the Supreme Court. By the time of Jesus, they're called the Sanhedrin. That's what Sanhedrin means. It means 70 elders. The place where this court then during the time of Jesus convened was in the temple. (laughs) Again, there's no separation between church and politics. So this building is called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. I think I have a PowerPoint showing where it is in the temple. Here's the temple and that arrow points, that building that the arrows point to is the Chamber of Hewn Stone. This is where the Sanhedrin, these 70 Supreme Court justices meet. Um, And then also you can see the interior as well. Now the high priest had Moses-like status. He not only is over this court, but he is the most powerful Jew in the entire world. So when Rome comes and takes over, 
They don't shut any of this down. They allow for Jewish worship, Jewish practice, but Rome is in complete control. They even hold the keys to this whole thing. The prestigious position of high priest, Rome gave to the highest bidder. It was bought. And who was the first person to purchase that position? Annas. He purchased it for an insane amount of money, paid in full to Rome. Annas then held on to this position for 10 years, which means for 10 years he was in full cooperation with Rome. And then when Annas retired, his five sons, one of whom was a son-in-law, Caiaphas, served in succession after him. So what you need to be thinking now, thing mafia, organized crime, all fully in bed with Rome. And over time, the entire priesthood became corrupt and dirty. And think about the calling that God placed on a priest. They were called to be like God. They were called to imitate God. They were called to declare the praises of God. They were set apart to be an advocate for the people, pointing the people to God, representing the people before God. And here they are, not just in bed with Rome, they became Rome. They oppressed their own people. They padded the temple tax. They developed money laundering schemes. They exploited this whole lamb without blemish because they could, because they were the ones that determined when you took your lamb, wherever you lived, you made the long journey to Jerusalem for Passover, and then you would take that family lamb to the, to the priests. And they could just look at it and say, not good enough. You can buy one of ours for $200, but at least... It meets qualifications. And they did this. And they developed all these money-making rackets on the backs of the common person and the poor. And this is how they became so rich. This is what afforded them these palatial mansions and allowed them to live this, this posh Roman life. And if you want to know why Jesus went off in the temple with a whip in his hand, turning over everything, the money changers and their product and everything. This is why. It infuriated him. And not just Jesus. Hundreds of priests themselves left it because it was so corrupt and they wanted nothing to do with it. Now, in 66 AD, a generation after Jesus died, when the Jews finally had enough of this and they revolted against Rome, Annas was assassinated by a zealot. So for a whole half century, Annas was the most powerful Jew and the most corrupt Jew on the face of the earth. And this is who Jesus is brought before in John chapter 18. The trial begins, and it's in Anna's mansion. 
Then it will be moved next door to his son-in-law's, Caiaphas's mansion. Now listen, according to Jewish law, all trials of this nature were to be held in the chamber of hewn stone, that supreme court building in the temple, because they are to be held in public during the day among the people, right in the center where all of Jewish life is happening, not tucked away in some mansion in some gated community. In fact, Jewish law even stated that that any trial that was going on when the sun set would have to stop immediately to be convened the next day when it was light out again. More importantly, all trials of this kind of nature are to be before the entire 70 of that Sanhedrin. They are all to be present, all 70 justices. It's highly questionable that they are. I mean, this is Passover, the equivalent of Christmas Eve, and you're telling me that all 70 just dropped everything that they were doing with their family and got up and made it to this trial. So we have to see just the bogus nature of this trial. It's the wrong place at the wrong time, the wrong process. And then the trial begins in verse 19 with Annas asking Jesus about his teaching. Jesus' answer here is strong. Jesus says, everything I taught was in the most public places where Jews gather. I taught in the synagogues. I taught, I taught in the temple. It was all out in the open for everyone to hear. And then Jesus says, nothing I said was in secret. And you have to feel the punch of, of what Jesus is saying here because everyone in that room knows that This trial is just that. It's secretive. It's done in secret because it's how they do power. They do it behind closed doors, under the table kind of dealings. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is, I'm not like you guys. My whole life is an open book. Nothing to hide. It's all out in the open for everyone to see. I wish we could just be there to feel the tension that's in the room because the full force of who Jesus is, all his integrity, all his authenticity is pressing down upon every man in the room and they punch him because they can't handle the truth of this man who is standing before them It confronts them. It exposes them. They are dirty, and they feel dirty. And again, Jewish law states, clearly states, that the accused is not to be touched until pronounced guilty. But this is institutional power. What about us? What about you? 
the way that you do life, the way you treat people, all people, every person you encounter, every person you pass. How do you conduct your affairs? How do you do business? Because every single one of us has been entrusted with various degrees of influence. God made us in his image. He entrusted uh, things and stuff and possessions and positions. How do we use it? Are you secretive? Or are you an open book? Are you manipulative, sneaky? Are you dirty? Because one day, every one of our dealings will be exposed. All that we are, all that we have done, it will all be laid bare. Take time to read Luke 16 today because Jesus tells a parable there about a rich man and Lazarus. This is a parable actually about Annas and his five sons. And you'll see how in the end it will be exposed and God will bring his justice. Look at verse 21. Jesus ends as he says, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. You need to see what Jesus is asking for right now. He's just asking for a fair trial. Because again, according to their law, you need two witnesses to actually indict a person. This is stated in both uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Can I please, guys, have a fair trial? But this trial is a total sham because they have no desire to get at the truth. Annas and his henchmen are breaking every rule in the book, and Jesus is exposing this. Come on, ask someone who heard me. Get a witness in here, please. They will tell you, they will tell you what I said. They will tell you what I did. Why is this trial such a sham? Why aren't they getting witnesses? Why aren't they doing this in the open? I'll tell you why. They know they don't have a case. And they know they don't have witnesses. That's the last thing they wanted to is bring witnesses into this. Who are they going to bring in? See, so often we, we, we read the last week of Jesus' life. I've preached this before. I've heard, I, I still hear preachers preaching it all the time. They're like, how could the Jews one day on Palm Sunday hail Jesus as king And then just one week later, I'll be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Listen, the Jews that hailed Jesus Christ as king on Palm Sunday, they're all sleeping. 
They just ate a huge Passover meal that included four glasses of wine. (laughs) And it's two in the morning. Trust me, they're sleeping. Why are Annas and his henchmen breaking every rule, doing this in the wee hours of the night on Christmas Eve? Because they want this over. This is why in just a matter of hours when this thing goes to Pilate, they're going to demand of Pilate, don't just kill him, crucify him. They are the ones that are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Which is more than kill him, it's torture him. Because they know what a, a Roman crucifixion accomplished. It instantly instilled terror in the masses. It shut everyone up. It shut everyone down. And any questions, any pushback that anyone might have, all they have to do is say, there's the cross. We'll put you up right next to him. Now, we all know where this whole story is going. We know that Annas and his cronies, that they're going to succeed And the masses will slowly wake up. And before they can even drink their first sip of coffee, they will be hit with the rumor that Jesus of Nazareth is hanging on a Roman cross just outside the city. Think about how wrong Annas and his cronies are. And And they're not just wrong. They are wrong about the most important person in human history. They are on the wrong side of history. And yet they keep doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. They are wrong about the most important, most hopeful, life-giving reality to ever enter the world. And for what? Self-preservation. So they can keep their lavish life and live in their mansion and hold on to their power and have their, their, their comfortable Roman life. And it would be so easy for us today to just look at Annas and his henchmen and say, not I. <laughs> really? How often are we driven by our own selfish agendas? How often are we just driven by this need to be right? And then we double down and double down because we have to be right. How often does our selfish ambition become the filter by which we interpret events and circumstances? And so many times it doesn't just stop with self-serving viewpoints, but often leads to self-centered actions that just ensure our own self-preservation. Are we really that much different? 
The most dangerous thing that we could do right now is just apply this to other people because I'm sure other people have already come to our minds. Yeah, that's this person. Yeah, this, that's this group of people. The best thing we could do is let the Holy Spirit work on our own, own heart and expose things, things that we need to repent of that cause us right now to fall on our knees and say, God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Let me end with what all of this means. A simple text about Jesus on trial getting punched in the face. (laughs) Going back, way back to the beginning of the story, the biblical story in Exodus 17, God just delivered Israel from slavery under Pharaoh and their exodus takes them into the desert, this barren wasteland, and immediately uh, we f- f- see the Israelites. They, they miss Egypt. They miss their creaturely comforts, the food, their nice homes with the chariot and the garage. Um, and and then, it, then it even turns into a crisis where there's no water. There's no water. That's, that's a real crisis. And so the whining and the complaining that, 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 that they've been about for the last several days now reaches the, le- the, the level where they want to stone Moses. And Moses knows this. And Moses cries out to God. And God says, okay, Moses, this is what I want you to do. Go get all the elders, and I want you to walk to Sinai, which is 12 miles away. So Moses rounds up all the elders, and they walk away from this crisis. When Moses gets to Sinai, God says something that literally would have shocked Moses. God says to Moses, Moses, I will stand before you. Now, to stand before is actually technical language. It's court language. It's it's what the accused does before a judge. What God should say or what Moses expects him to say is, Moses, I want you to stand before me because you as the high priest are the representative of these people and these people are spoiled brats. They're whining, they're complaining. And he doesn't say that. And says, he says to Moses, I will stand before you. And so Moses, the high priest in this moment, the representative of God's people, is probably just so perplexed. Where God's people should be the one on trial, God is saying, no, I am on trial. And God stands before Moses as the accused. This begs an important question. Is God guilty? Is God to blame? Is God to blame for our world? Is God to blame for a 31-year-old wife and mother with two kids who passes away from cancer? Is God to blame for your life? Is God the problem? I mean, when you read this story, think about everything that God has done for Israel, how God just set Israel free 
this dazzling display of his power parting the Red Sea. Well, this whole story gets even crazier because God says to Moses, Moses, that staff in your hand, that staff that has come to represent my finger, my power, I mean, that staff is what unleashed all the plagues, the plagues of God's judgment on Egypt. God says, Moses, take that staff and hit the rock. Hit it, strike it. And Moses knew exactly what God was saying. He knew God was saying, Moses, hit me. Strike me with the staff. And Moses is probably like, God, you know I could never do that. No, Moses, hit me. And somehow Moses got enough courage to take that staff that represented the power and the finger and the justice of God, and he hit the rock in water. Mine Kaim, life-giving water flowed out for all the people to drink. And 1 Corinthians 10 does commentary on this story and says, and that rock was Christ. He is the rock that was struck. And now here in our text today, here is Jesus, the judge of the world, standing before the high priest, their Moses, as the accused, And this is more than just a trial. God is on trial. And Christ is struck. And if you keep reading before the night is over, that room full of dirty punks, they will blindfold Jesus. And one after another, they will hit him and hit him and hit him. And then they will send him to Pilate. And Pilate's man, men will hit him and beat him and beat him until he is one lash from death. And then they'll hang him on a cross to crush him. What's happening? The rock is being hit. The judge of the world is the one judged. He's the one sentenced, condemned, executed. He's standing in our place. He's getting everything that we deserve so that his life could flow like water into ours, washing us, curing us, forgiving us, restoring us. As the hymn says, rock of ages, cleft for me, Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, safe from wrath, and make me pure. I mean, of all the biblical stories and and images that point to Christ, you have the manna, you have the snake on a pole, you have the word, the tabernacling among us, you have the bridegroom, the new wine. This one right here is the one that is most stunning to me. This melts me. Just think of all your failures. 
think of all your mistakes. We don't have a prayer before the judge of the universe. We're the ones that deserve to be crushed. But instead, this judge says, I'm going to stand in your place and I'm going to be crushed for you. If you plug this reality in your heart where it goes from your mind and the penny drops and it falls deep into the crevices of your heart where you see Jesus with the eyes of your heart standing in your place, I'm telling you this will change us from the inside out. And I'll tell you really quickly four ways how it can radically change you. Number one, you'll stop blaming God. You'll stop thinking that God hasn't done anything for the sin and evil in our world. I mean, just look at him being crushed. When he has the power to crush us. And when we see Christ standing in our place and, and, and bearing our judgment in our place, how can we take sin lightly? Look at the lengths to which God went to deal with sin. But because God has provided a rock-solid place for us to take our sin, we can actually get gutsy with our sin, gutsy with our guilt. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to cover it up anymore. We don't have to blame others for what we are and what we have done. We can take it to the rock. And we can know he's going to, as far as the east is from the west, he will remove it. Or how can we stand in judgment of other people? Christians have become so critical, so judgmental these days. But when we see Jesus actually standing in our place, getting what we deserve... Don't you see how this just kills the root of all of our critical, judgmental attitudes? It just kills self-righteousness. I can't say that I am righteous because I am so good. I can only say I'm righteous because look at him. He's so good. And finally, if we see Jesus standing in our place all the ways that we've been hurt, all the ways that we've been wrong, how can we not forgive? Look at them. Blow after blow. Nails, suffering, pain. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the power to forgive. Spirit of the living God, would you open the eyes of our heart to see Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he came to be, to do. And God, your spirit could take that to our heart so that our heart could know, Jesus, you did that for me. This morning, if you 
just need to hear something like, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because his body was broken, his blood was shed, he took our condemnation. I will be at the communion table if you'd like to take communion.